Hail brothers and welcome back. The Didactic Mind podcast is back at long, long last. It's been almost three months since I've done a proper Didactic Mind episode rather than a Domain Query episode. Very, very warm welcome to all of my longtime readers uh, on the site. Very warm welcome to all of my longtime subscribers on Podbean. I thank you for your patience. I know it's uh, not been terribly fun, perhaps, if you're on Podbean and there's no new content, nothing's showing up. I assure you, I have been meaning to make a podcast. It's just finding the time and the willpower to do so for whatever reason in the last few months, it's been very difficult to get motivated for doing a full-length podcast. I don't really know why, but I think it might have something to do with the fact that every day on my Telegram channel, I, or almost every day, I should say, I do a somewhere between a six to ten minute, usually on the longer side of ten minutes, uh, daily update where I give a rundown of what's going on with the Ukraine war, the Banderistan war as I call it, and various other current events. And so that's kind of a podcast's worth of material every week anyway, right? So uh, nonetheless, I think it's worth exploring some of these ideas in some detail and Make sure, please, if you haven't done so already, to subscribe to my Telegram channel. Make sure to subscribe to the site so you never miss any new posts, any new updates. Make sure you sign up to the mailing list. Make sure you hit subscribe on the podcast itself so that you never miss a new upload. I do have a number of interesting uh, questions which come through either on my Telegram channel or through emails or through comments on my site, which I do address from time to time. So if you want to hear my take on something, uh, by all means, make sure you send it over and I will get to it as soon as I can. The uh, other thing I wanted to point out is given how crazy things are getting and given how, you know, given the, the content of, of this podcast, which relates directly to how crazy things are getting, uh, you will want to make sure you are well protected online and well able to explore and move around online without being restricted by your geography. And that comes down to having a good VPN. Surfshark is my VPN of choice when it comes to that sort of thing. The user interface is fantastic. It's unlimited devices, unlimited availability. You can use it wherever, whenever. It does work very well. I've used it in the past. I think it's an excellent choice for a VPN. Take a look at the links in the description box. You can get quite a substantial discount Uh, They've also come up with a new product called Incogni, which helps you basically remove your personal data from the web. And that's becoming more and more important by the day at this point. Uh, the, The West is becoming ever less free and ever less transparent. And the amount of data leakage happening if you live in the West is just not funny. You can't take your online anonymity for granted in the Western world anymore. So by all means, check out those links. There's also a link for Atlas VPN, which is a subsidiary actually of NordVPN. They use, I think, the same backbone technology, uh, but Atlas VPN is kind of lower priced. It's a simpler VPN. It's available across a lot more platforms. I mean, a lot more devices. And it's just, it's a simple, no nonsense, easy to use VPN. Check it out. By all means, have a look and see if you like it. But my personal recommendations are always Atlas and Surfshark. And uh, be sure 
to sign up and subscribe if you want to take advantage of those offers. Now, this episode, Didactic Mind episode 108, I want to believe it's been around for that long, but 108, Dying of the Light, is all about the tectonic shifts we've seen over the past couple of weeks. This week in particular has seen more events rammed in the space of seven days than we've seen in some cases over years. It's one of those weeks where years happen across the span of days, literally. We are seeing things change at a rate that I don't think anybody really anticipated even in six months ago. The world has changed irreversibly in the past year with the Banderistan War starting on February 24th, 2022. That was effectively the end of the old so-called rules-based international order, which Western elites and deep staters keep banging on about. No one can define what it means. No one knows what these rules are. No one can articulate them. No one can explain them. And yet, Every Western statesman and diplomat and deep state creature keeps talking on and on and on about the importance of preserving the rules-based international order. Well, in the past week, we've seen definitive confirmation that order is dead. And as far as I'm concerned, it couldn't come soon enough. Because this rules-based international order really comes down to, we have the guns, We make the rules, we have the money, we establish the order. And if you don't like it, we will sanction you and we will invade you and we will take away everything you have and we will destroy you because you don't want to play by our rules, whatever those rules are. We'll make them up on the fly. What If we don't like what you're doing, we'll change the rules on you so that you can't profit, you can't benefit. As long as you play within the sandbox we give you, and we can change the the size of that sandbox and the definition of it anytime we want, then you'll be fine. You'll make money. You'll have a good life. But the moment you want a little something more for yourself beyond what we're inclined to give you, then we'll destroy you. That's, as far as I can tell, the Western rules-based international order. Now... I'm not saying this because I hate the West, quite the opposite, actually. I am a child of the West. I grew up in the West. I very strongly believe in some, not all, Western values. Whatever those values might be, how do you define them? Well, I believe in the pillars of Western civilization. Greco-Roman philosophy, Christian morality. Don't waste my time with this Judeo-Christian crap. There's no such thing. Christian morality and the European nations. So as far as I'm concerned, I believe in those things. Those define the West for me. Now, you can get into lots of arguments about, you know, how do you define a European nation, given how often the Europeans have gone to war with each other? Yeah, that's, that's fair enough. Uh, there are lots of fluid borders in Europe, even though the Europeans have pretended for the last 30 years, oh, no, the borders are fixed. No, they're not. Uh, they really aren't. They're, they're just not fixed at all. Uh, But today's episode is all about the dying of the light. And that comes from uh, quite a a famous poem, as many of you will be well aware. Uh, The the title of that poem uh, 
really comes from a particular um, Dylan Thomas poem, you know, the do not go gentle into that good night. And um, it's all about raging against the inevitable end of all things. Well, that's exactly what um, the United States is doing right now. It's raging against the end of the empire. And those of you who were born before uh, 1991, thereabouts, as I was, you grew up in a world where there were two great empires. There was the American sort of Western Empire and the Soviet Empire. And the Soviet Empire collapsed in 1991 peacefully, um, by and large. And the whole 30 years since then has been the story of the American empire, the American age, of American global hegemony. And we are now living through the collapse of a second empire. Now, how many times in history has that happened? In the space of 30 years, in the space of one man's life, a young man's life, you've seen two globe-spanning empires collapse. This does not happen very often at all. Uh, if you go th back through all of human history, I think you'll find, you know, you could probably count it on the fingers of one hand, is my guess. I mean, I haven't obviously done any checks, but that's my guess. You're talking about the equivalent of basically the Spanish and British empires collapsing all at once. And that didn't happen. I mean, the Spanish empire collapsed over centuries. The British Empire collapsed suddenly, but it collapsed peacefully. The American Empire is not going to collapse peacefully, but we're seeing that collapse now. And the American response to that is a turbocharged form of imperialism, of hyper-Americanism, which is leading the world to right up to and possibly beyond the brink of nuclear apocalypse. And I'm not exaggerating about that. Now... I don't believe it will come to a nuclear apocalypse because I happen to take the words of the book of Revelation seriously. I don't think it's going to get to that point, but it will get awfully close. What are we looking at globally? Well, we're looking at the breakup and splintering of the world into a truly multipolar order. And the summit in Moscow this week really cemented that. Why do I say it's a multipolar order? Take a look at what's happened in the past 10 days or so. Xi Jinping went to Moscow on Monday, and he met with Putin for like five hours the first day and six hours the second day. It was a very, very intensive period of talks. Uh, now, obviously, a lot of the groundwork had been laid beforehand by a lot of much lower-level diplomats, right up to the foreign ministers of both countries. So there were lots of trade agreements signed, lots of big deals lots of agreements on economic and scientific cooperation, lots of um, very useful and interesting uh, joint ventures that will now proceed between both countries. And, by the way, lots of energy deals going, ensuring the security of China's supply lines. But on top of that, Putin dropped the bombshell, you know, I think on the second day, where he pointed out that the United Kingdom had agreed to 
allow for the use of depleted uranium rounds in Ukraine. And if you look at Xi Jinping's face or uh, Sergei Shoigu's face, the defense minister of Russia's face in, in the actual video, you'll see they looked pissed. They were really unhappy. I mean, they were masking it well, but they looked really unhappy. And they clearly regarded this as a major escalation by the West. Again, that dying of raging against the dying of the light, because the British and the Americans understand full well what's happening in Banderistan. They are losing, and they're losing really badly. Meanwhile, in Moscow, the two great Eurasian powers have just signed agreements on economic, technological, scientific, diplomatic, uh, and foreign policy cooperation across a very wide range of fields. Then along comes, or around the same time, along comes this news that Saudi Arabia and Iran have agreed to reopen diplomatic relations. This is nothing short of an earthquake. Saudi Arabia is the center and the focus of Sunni Islam in the world. The, the faith followed by 93% or thereabouts of all Muslims everywhere. They are the kind of guardians and preservers of Sunni Islam. I don't agree with Sunni Islam. I don't agree with Islam in, at all, but that's their prerogative. They control Mecca. They control Medina. They control all of the holy sites of what they consider to be Islam. Now, Iran is the focus and uh, spiritual home of Shia Islam. Shia Islam is an offshoot uh, that they have a very different set of traditions in some ways. They have a different set of eschatological beliefs. They are very much enemies of and rivals of the Saudis, and historically always have been. The Saudis had a vested interest in toppling the Shia-dominated government of Iran. It's, I mean, the population is majority Shia. Persian, um, you know, being the, the the Persians being the drivers of the first expansion of Islam back in the seventh century. Well, if you believe the canonical timeline, which I don't, um, and there's increasingly good evidence to question it. But anyway, the point is, the Saudis always saw the Iranians as their rivals for regional dominance, and originally under uh, I think King Salman, uh, so basically MBS's dad. Uh, pursued a policy of direct confrontation of Iran and containment of Iran. And in the process, they created alliances of, with, of all people, the Israelis. I mean, think about that. Um, the Saudis conducted alliances and covert operations alongside the Jews. That, uh, like, how does that work between an Islamic country that supposedly hates Jews and wants to see them destroyed and actually fought, you know, some very, very vicious wars against Israel um, and the Jews, who obviously have a vested interest in keeping all the various powers of the region at each other's throats. But now the Saudis and the Iranians have agreed to reopen diplomatic ties. That is huge. And then on top of that, Egypt and Turkey agreed to reopen diplomatic ties again. Uh, a sort of Sunni regional power plus a, uh, I don't even know what you'd call them, Sufi, sort of, Sunni, sort of, you know, Islamic, supposedly secular, but actually an Islamic country, 
coming together with wildly opposing views on a number of subjects and yet still able to come to an understanding that benefits both parties to the exclusion of the United States. And then Syria and Iran and Saudi Arabia, uh, actually Syria and Saudi, agree to reopen diplomatic ties. The Islamic world is healing after the, the fracturing and the destruction imposed upon it by the Second Gulf War. All of this is happening to kind of encircle and isolate the United States. And that is astonishing, if you think about it. The U.S. is no longer able to impose its will upon the Middle East. It's losing control of Saudi Arabia, which is where basically Henry Kissinger went to do a deal with the Saudis back in the 1970s. And he did a deal with King Fahd. I think it was King Fahd. I could be wrong. But it was, he, he did a deal with the Saudis, which established the petrodollar. And that was the deal that has preserved and ensured American prosperity and actually Middle Eastern prosperity in the entire time span since. The petrodollar comes down to America uh, buying oil from the Saudis in dollars. Saudi Arabia would only sell oil denominated in dollars. End of story. America would buy that oil in dollars. The Saudis would take those dollars and reinvest them back into the United States in the form of treasury bonds and weapons sales, like weapons purchases, rather. So in the process, the United States dollar became the global benchmark for the single most important global commodity. The Saudis invested billions and billions and billions of dollars in the U.S. economy. The Americans were able to export their dollars all around the globe. Everyone needed dollars to do international trade of any kind. This is an astonishing, astonishing situation. No other currency in history other than the British pound has ever had that status. And even the British pound was never this ubiquitous. And it was never that sort of level of uh, importance. And yet now, the Saudis are openly talking about doing trade in other currencies. They're talking about selling oil in yuan to the Chinese. And if you look at China's strategic interests, you're observing at, in, in the last sort of week how cleverly the Chinese are adapting to the current situation. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I think uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor gave an excellent summation of the Chinese philosophy uh, or approach to international relations uh, in a, I think it was an interview he did with Judge Andrew Napolitano, where he appears regularly on the judge's show, in which he pointed out uh, what it is that guides Chinese economic and foreign policy. Uh, as Colonel McGregor stated, if you look at China's current supply lines, China as a country actually doesn't have, uh, for a country of its size and population, that much by way of natural resources. I'm not saying it's poor in natural resources, it just doesn't have enough particularly by way of oil, natural gas, coal, timber, uh, certainly not enough by way of fertile uh, so soil. Excuse me. So it doesn't have enough food and it doesn't have enough energy to power its economy on its own. It just doesn't. So China relies on trade with other countries to supply it with these things, bauxite and, and tin and, and 
uh, iron and all the other bits and pieces that it needs to become the manufacturing center of the world. Now, China as a power has more manufacturing capacity than the United States and all of Europe combined, but it doesn't have the raw materials. If you look at its raw material uh, supply lines right now, they're mostly maritime. So it gets most of its oil from tankers coming from the Arabian Gulf. It gets much of its food from Europe, well, sort of Eastern Europe, from Russia to a large extent, yes, uh, from Africa, from Southeast Asia. It gets a lot of its mineral wealth or mineral inputs from Australia. And all of that has to cross the sea. Guess who's in the way? The US Navy. So China, being led by competent, capable, highly intelligent leaders, I don't like them, but I can respect them, understands the situation and understands that if the US Navy ever wanted to blockade China, it could. I mean, it wouldn't be able to do it very well, but it could. So where does China go? It goes to its historic roots, which is the Silk Road running through all of Central Asia, all the way to Europe, all the way to the Middle East, all the way down to Africa. And what does that give China? It gives trade and access to raw materials. So what has China done for the last 20 years? It has built a relationship, an energy relationship with Russia, which is really burgeoning right now. So Russia's energy will flow through the power of Siberia, uh, pipeline projects, and through various oil and gas uh, projects to China instead of to Europe. Its food will go to China, its, its export market. I mean, Russia produces enormous amounts of food, much more than it needs domestically. It has everything it needs domestically and can export that globally. It, uh, China will now get raw materials of many different kinds from Central Asia, which is also very rich in oil and natural gas. So we're talking the Ukstan countries, you know, uh, uh, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, uh, Tajikistan, etc., etc. Very sparsely populated countries for their size, but very, very wealthy in mineral wealth and with very poor infrastructure. So the Chinese are going to come in and build all of that. The One Belt, One Road initiative will run all the way through to the Middle East and will run into Northern Africa, where the Chinese will be able to export <clears throat> African grain, copper, iron, timber, and all sorts of other things, all the, cobalt as well, which they need uh, to produce electric batteries, all the way to China. But it'll go over land, and much more cheaply than by sea, because it'll be running on high-speed rail. All of this makes China immune to the ability of the United States to cut off its trade. And the Chinese know it. And in the process, it will bring pr prosperity and wealth to the rest of the world. People keep thinking the Chinese want to replace America as the global hegemon. I have no patience for this argument because there is no evidence to support it. Let me be very clear about what the Chinese, uh, the, well, not the CCP, the CPC, the Communist Party of China actually is. We need to understand it very well. The CPC is not a communist organization in the classic sense. It's not and has not been for a long time. You, to understand modern China, you have to understand it not as a communist country, but actually as a fascist country. And once you strip away all the emotive language 
around fascism and you just look at what fascism is, it is ultimately the division of people, not by class, but by, na by nation, effectively along the lines of national identity rather than class identity. That's exactly what the Chinese do. The Chinese are the most racist people you'll ever meet. I've traveled all around the world. By far the most racist I've ever met are the Chinese. They will screw you on any business deal they can, quite happily. They have no problems whatsoever with screwing you over every time you do a deal with them, if it's to their benefit. But they are also primarily interested in trade and getting rich. They're not interested in coming in with their military and taking all of your stuff. They're not interested in telling you how to run your political system. They're interested primarily in getting rich. Okay, I can live with that. Most people can live with that. You don't have to like the Chinese way of doing things to accept their money. It's not like in the US where if you want to be part of a US club of nations, you have to accept their LGBTQ, WTF is this shit nonsense. You don't have, you, you have to accept their insistence that you must be okay with butt sex. You, you have to accept their foreign NGOs coming in and destabilizing your government and your country. You have to accept their military bases. You have to accept their commercial products. You have to accept everything that they tell you to take. You have to accept their so-called press freedoms, which really mean, you know, their cultural poison being pumped into your country. You have to accept their anti-Christian, anti-religious, as long as it's not, you know, they, they don't do anti-Islam, but anti-Christian uh, point of view. You have to accept all of this crap. The Chinese don't care. They just... They're not interested in that stuff. So the Chinese have no interest in supplanting the United States as a global hegemon. They know damn well they have serious problems in their country, and I've gone over these many times. They are only interested in getting rich while they can. And that we can all respect, I think. So they are not going to impose their way of life on people, and they're not going to impose their system of government on people, unlike the Americans. If you look at Russia and what's happening there, the Russians are not the evil empire of the USSR, not anymore. They've changed quite substantially. If you look at Putin, he today actually, exactly 20 years ago today, he became president of Russia for the first time. And if you look at everything Putin has done in the 20 years he's been in power, he has always acted from a position of rebuilding Russia's nation. And when I say Russia as Russia's nation, I mean Russia as a nation, meaning he's tried to rebuild its language, its people, its, its blood, its faith, its traditions, and its history. He's done all of these things. It's been a very difficult project, but he has managed it. If you look at Russia today, and I've visited Russia many times, I'm hoping to go back there this summer if I can. Um, a lot of planning that has to happen first, but I hope I can go back to Russia and, and revisit for maybe a week or two. It would be really nice. Um, if you look at what Russia is today, it is essentially what Europe was in the 1990s in a lot of ways. It's an open, liberal, in the traditional sense, classically liberal, uh, free society. I don't know why people say Russia is a repressive, autocratic, authoritarian regime. It's not. 
I've been there. I was there the day the 50,000 people marched in the streets of Moscow demanding an end to, or protesting basically, plans to raise the pension eligibility age. I was there on that day. I saw what happened. The government backed down a little bit. And if you compare what happened in Russia on that day to what's happening in France right now, you can see just how different Russia is. It's a much more democratic society, actually, than the supposedly democratic France. That's the truth of things. I, I'm, you know, this is God's honest truth coming from somebody who is there at the time. I can tell you from my own personal witness of seeing thousands and thousands of young people on Novi Arbat that day, and they, you know, ran straight into police lines. There were quite violent protests in some ways, but nowhere near on uh, the, the scale of violence you're seeing in France today. The Russians backed down. So what you're seeing emerging across the world is not actually the triumph of totalitarianism. There was a really ridiculous video from uh, Matthew Tai, aka Sea Milk, aka Lawe86, uh, who is one half of the, um, what's it called? The, 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 the channel on YouTube that does like adventure rides around the world. Basically, he, he, he rides around with uh, Winston Sturzel, who is uh, the guy behind the Serpent ZA channel. And I'm not revealing anything new. I mean, these guys have. Um, mentioned their names, their actual names, their actual identities online many, many times. So this is like years old information. It's publicly available data. But um, both of these guys have lived in China extensively and now they live in the United States. Well, good for them. I mean, if they want to choose to live in the US, that's fine. But they spend much of their time nowadays blasting China, specifically the Chinese, the, what they call the Chinese Communist Party, or what I call the CPC, which is its actual name, the, the Communist Party of China, they spend their time blasting the CPC for supposedly being an authoritarian evil dictatorship. There's some truth to that, but not a whole lot, not anymore. Yes, the CPC is extremely authoritarian, extremely suppressive of freedom, and yet protests happen in China on a daily basis. That's the actual truth. If you go to China, and I haven't been in like 20 years, so you know, don't take my word for it. I have been to Russia many times. I haven't been to China more than once. Um, protests do happen, and they are a sort of release valve, an escape valve to let off some of the social pressure. And the CPC does pay attention. That's why the CPC rolled back a lot of these stupid convict protections that they had in place. Uh, and that's why the Chinese economy is now reopening. It's because the CPC actually pays attention to what the people want. That doesn't mean I agree with the system. I don't like it. I would never want to live under a Chinese system. I would never want to live in China. But there are people who do. I think the majority of the Chinese actually have a closer tie to the Chinese political elite than Americans or Westerners do with their own political elites. That's just an observable fact. So when people say that there is an you know, when, when Seamilk says on his channel, well, it's a new allies versus Axis situation, he's got it completely backwards. The good guys today are not the Americans, NATO, and the West. They haven't been for a very long time. The good guys are actually the authoritarians, believe it or not. The good guys are actually Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, Bashar al-Assad, all of these guys who are supposedly dictators, 
who are supposedly anti-freedom, anti-liberty, but in reality have guided their countries very well under the rule of their law. You don't have to like their law, but it's their law, and they follow it. Whereas, by comparison, you have a completely fake and gay uh, so-called rule of law in the United States, in the Western world, which doesn't work, and which doesn't represent the people, which only represents the interests of a very narrow ruling elite, and completely screws over everybody else. So, which order would you rather live under? Increasingly, more and more people are making the choice to go over to the order that promises individual nations the right to make up their own minds, the right to choose what kind of system they want to live under. And that system, that, that multipolar world order, is inspiring a tremendous backlash from the United States. But the US is realizing very quickly its primary weapons are no longer working. What are those weapons? Well, the financial weapons of mass destruction, which have boomeranged right back into the faces of all the countries that use them. The, the single greatest weapon the United States has is not actually its military, which is falling apart. That's the truth of it. The single greatest weapon it has is the financial system, SWIFT, and the US dollar. Now, Russia, this past week, mandated all of its domestic banks to stop using SWIFT for domestic transfers. For international transfers, you still have to use SWIFT. But they've dictated um, the use of SPF, SPFS. Sistema, Sistema something, Finansovich Sovsheni. Sistema something, I have to... I have to look up. I keep forgetting the, what the P stands for. Uh, that's right. Sistema Peredaci Finansovich Sobshini. Basically, system for sending of financial messages. That's really all it comes down to. The Russians are a fairly literal people. Um, they're a fun bunch. I like them very much, but they are quite literal. Um, anyway, they have mandated the use of this system, which is actually, believe it or not, bigger than the Chinese system. The Chinese, um, I used to know the name of this off the top of my head because I did a payments research project not too long ago, but I've forgotten it now. Anyway, the, the Chinese system is actually a lot smaller in scope and scale, even though the Chinese have a much bigger overall banking sector. Uh, but the SPFS can now be extended across the entire world. Indonesia said just this past week they're going to mandate the cessation of use of Visa and MasterCard for internal domestic payments. Now, if you understand anything about payment rails, and I do, it's an esoteric subject, but I know a little something about it, you will understand just how big a deal that is. When you're, the, the way the Russians managed it is, in the wake of the 2014 sanctions against their banks, where a number of their banks were cut off from the SWIFT system in response to the Russian annexation of what was always Russian territory, of Crimea. The Russians created the Mir uh, system for payments. And that is essentially a local backbone of, of payments where everything settles internally on this local network. And then that includes Visa and MasterCard and Amex, actually. So 
instead of relying on um, Visa, MasterCard, and Amex to run payments for them, they basically have to run their payments on the Mir network, and then everything nets out, and Visa, MasterCard, and Amex get lump payments after everything else settles, rather than creating three separate payment rails that they can then shut off. Only the Russian government can shut off this rail. Uh, the same thing will now exist in Indonesia. Now, the Indonesians have to figure out how to develop it. Well, why not just ask the Russians? Because the Russians have always made it clear, we're not going to tell you what to do with your own technology. We're going to help you build it, but it's your technology. We're not going to build backdoors into, well, they probably do, but you know, they don't say so overtly. We're not going to build backdoors into it that we can hack and shut you down. Um, globally, we're seeing more and more countries adopting this method, where they're saying, you know what, we don't want to be reliant on these big American corporations which could kill our economies with the flip of a switch. Rather, we want to develop our own payment systems which can then integrate with and talk with other payment systems around the world and build a network of, of systems that are interoperable. And this is a much more sensible and safe way of doing it because you're no, you're no longer exposed to countries that will steal your assets and plunder your riches and cut you off and sanction you. I mean, if you piss off anybody in the United States nowadays by not submitting to transgender ideology or not agreeing with um, the LGBTQ, WTF is the shit movement, if you were at the January 6th um, peaceful, mostly peaceful protest, it actually was mostly peaceful as we now know, uh, if you espouse views of a, you know, a strongly Christian nature, the government can come in and say, okay, you can't open up a bank account. Or actually, corporations can do that. Chase Manhattan, or Chase, J.P. Morgan Chase, not Chase Manhattan. J.P. Morgan Chase can say, you can't have a bank account with us. Bank of America will then turn around and say the same thing. Um, PayPal will shut you down and then fine you. They'll take your own money because you spread misinformation according to them, according to their rules. Twitter, Google, Facebook, Apple, they'll all shut you down immediately. Why would you want to be exposed to that? Meanwhile, halfway around the world, there are companies who actually want your money. Yes, they'll screw you, but they say openly we'll screw you. But they'll actually deliver a service that you pay for. You don't have to worry about them just shutting down the moment um, they feel like it for rules that keep changing arbitrarily. They outline the things that they will shut you down for. And then they stick to that. They haven't degenerated to the point where they will simply shut you down because they don't like you. Why wouldn't you want a system like that? Increasingly, individuals and countries are turning away from what the West has to offer because the West no longer offers anything compelling. The United States is raging against this by threatening anyone who goes against it with sanctions. But the Russians were the first to show, truly on a global scale, just how badly sanctions work as a weapon of war. When you try to sanction the globe's commodities superpower, it doesn't work. And Russia has spent the last eight years building a system of systems that immunize it from the influence and perniciousness of the West, which is why they developed their own financial payment system, their own financial messaging system, their own bank cards, their own domestic internet. I mean, there was a this huge controversy a few years ago 
where Microsoft said, we're going to, you know, we're not going to allow LinkedIn into Russia after they acquired LinkedIn. You're not going to be able to use LinkedIn in Russia because the Russians require us to store all customer data on Russian servers. That's not quite accurate. What, they, what the Russians actually mandated was you must store customer data of Russians on Russian servers in Russia itself. And Microsoft, being a nominally American but actually Indian-run company, said, no, we're not going to do that. Okay, they left. The companies that have stayed in Russia, though, have realized that that's actually very much their benefit. Because now, Americans can't shut off internet access to Russia. People who want to access uh, sites and domains within Russia can do so quite easily because they can do so with VPNs. But if they operate in the Russian market, they just have to leave their own data and their own customer data in Russia itself. So why wouldn't you do that? You know, that, that actually makes sense. It restores sovereignty of data and sovereignty of transactions to the countries in question, rather than leaving it in the hands of an American empire that is collapsing before our eyes. The other weapon, well, coming back to sanctions briefly, sanctions haven't worked, no matter where they're tried. I mean, if you look at Cuba, the Cuban economy is still running, the, the, the Cuban dictatorship is still in power. Iran hasn't worked. Iran's economy has taken a severe beating, but they've actually managed to innovate and kind of move beyond the sanctions in many, many ways. They've built regional trading alliances. They've built up their relationships with Russia and China. They found ways to get past those sanctions. Uh, North Korea. <clears throat> I'm not saying North Korea is a model to follow because it's not. I mean, the North Korean, the, 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 the leadership cast of North Korea is nuts. Like, seriously, they are bug shit nuts. But they've survived. Not the average North Korean is in a terrible position. Okay, I'm not, I'm not defending the North Korean leadership. But the point is they've survived Western sanctions. Uh, India even was sanctioned uh, a number of times by the Americans and manages just fine. And then you get to Syria, which was sanctioned to hell and has still survived. You know, all the Assad must go crowd, all of the people who said Assad must go, Assad must go, they've all gone. They're all gone, except for Erdogan, who is still there. Uh, and that's only because he, he significantly moderated his position and has come around to the point of view that actually Assad is a stabilizing force in the region and needs to stay. And then, of course, Russia. Now, Russia is the most sanctioned country on Earth by miles and is not only standing, but thriving. The Russian economy is doing better than it was a year ago. Its finances are stable. Its oil and gas revenues have exploded. Its exports to the rest of the world have exploded. Its system of parallel imports has ensured that anything that it really needs will get to the country. If you look at Russian grocery stores or supermarket shelves, they are groaning with produce. I mean, literally. Meanwhile, in the United Kingdom, a couple of weeks back, people couldn't get tomatoes on their shelves. In, um, in continental Europe, they're unable to get basic foodstuffs onto the shelves because of soaring energy prices, because the primary supplier of energy no longer supplies energy to Europe, because the Americans blew up Nord Stream, and I'm, you know, I don't even hesitate saying that anymore, because it's the truth. So, uh, Cy Hirsch's article, I think, 
plus or minus a few issues here and there, paints a very compelling picture of just how the Americans did it. The Americans have lost control of the financial instruments of power. They still have substantial control over military means, but even the military is breaking down and cracking. The US military is in very, very dire trouble. It's failing to hit its recruitment numbers. Only the Marines, I think, hit their recruitment numbers in the past year. The US Army has failed, the US Air Force has failed, the US Navy has failed. It's using weapon systems that cannot work in the real world. The F-35 is hopeless. The literal combat ship and the Zumwalt-class destroyers for the Navy have been an utter disaster, a colossal waste of money and resources. The Ford-class aircraft carries $13 billion and counting. The Columbia-class uh, nuclear missile submarine is at least $9 billion per unit. And none of these surface ships that the United States is making has the capability to defend against the single most deadly weapon that has changed the face of kind of uh, the strategic landscape. Uh, Andrei Martyanov talked about this in his excellent book, highly recommended, called The Real Revolution in Military Affairs, which I think was uh, 2018, I'm going to say it was published, I think. Um, and he talked about the development of hypersonic missiles and how these are a game changer as standoff weapons. Um, and he's right. No American carrier group has the ability to defend against a salvo hypersonics. You cannot defend against aeroballistic uh, hypersonic cruise missiles. You cannot defend even against uh, hypersonic glide vehicles. Because what happens is these, uh, these missiles, like if you, if you take the, um, the HA-47M Kinjal, what happens is uh, a MiG-31K goes to supersonic uh, supercruise launches the missile and it, it is essentially unpowered for quite a while. Um, it has a range of, I think, 1,500 kilometers. Uh, plus the, the MiG-31 itself has a range of another 1,000 kilometers. So the Kinjal basically cruises to its target well outside of the engagement envelope of uh, a carrier group's air defenses. Then the rocket in its butt goes off. It shoots straight up and then maneuvers on, you know, you can maneuver on the way to the target, and then it comes essentially straight down on a ballistic, on a hyperballistic trajectory. And because it's a hypersonic missile, what, what happens is the air in front of the missile it essentially rips apart. So there's a, a cloud of superheated plasma that forms around the missile's nose, and that acts as a an electronic um, wave diffuser and absorber. So you can't even read the missile coming in. So you can't defend against it. If you can't see it, you can't defend against it. And it comes straight down onto the most vulnerable part of a carrier's deck. The same is true of the, uh, of the Tsirkon missile as well. I think, uh, what's it called, 3M22? So these missiles cannot be stopped. Guess who has the widest array of hypersonic missiles, the biggest lead in hypersonic missile technology in the world. It's the Russians. The Chinese have their own, um, I think, DH-17 or DH-21, I forget exactly what it's called, um, hypersonic missile, but it's much shorter range. It doesn't have the ability to engage 
uh, carrier groups at less uh, at more than 1500 kilometer ranges, which is actually um, carrier groups have the ability if you include the JASMS missiles to uh, you know um, attach the FA-18s launched off the decks of carriers to hit targets from up to 2600 kilometers away. That's these aren't my numbers. This is again Martianov uh, pointing all of this out. That range is well outside the Chinese engagement envelope. So you're looking at a big gap in existing Chinese missile defenses. Well, the Chinese have now entered into a direct, almost de jure alliance with the Russians to build out and develop, in part, their hypersonic missile capabilities. The Russians already have Ginjal missiles, which can reach targets 1,500 kilometers away. They have Tsirkon missiles, which they can put on their missile boats you know, stripped down versions on their missile boats, and they have them on their submarines, and they have them on their destroyers and their frigates, which can wipe out a carrier battle group from way outside a carrier battle group's engagement envelope. They have the Sarmat, the RS-28, which has basically the range and the power to go all the way around the world from behind American missile defenses and then spray a target with avant-garde hypersonic glide vehicle, re-entry vehicles, which will hit at something like Mach 20. Now, how much of this is marketing hype, how much of it is real, I don't know. But we already know the Russians have uh, shot down Ukrainian aircraft in the war using uh, Sukhoi Su-57s firing R-37M air-to-air missiles at engagement ranges of like 300 kilometers. And they've shot them down, you know, the R-37M hits at a a speed of about Mach 6. So the Russians have a lead on the Americans that cannot be surmounted. The the U.S. is nowhere close to developing even a successful prototype of a hypersonic cruise missile. Not, never mind a hypersonic glide vehicle, a cruise missile. The American edge on military grounds, therefore, is gone. It's gone and there's no getting back from it. The third area where America still has dominance is the media realm. And here, of course, you know, there's no question. No one has developed anything like the American network of information and misinformation and propaganda. No one. No one has that ability. Not the Chinese, not the Russians, no one. Because English is the lingua franca of the entire world, it's the language of business, it's the language of politics, it's the language of diplomacy, no one has the power over global opinion the way that America does. And yet even there, the American narrative is failing. The rest of the world does not view things the way America does. Roughly, if, if you go by uh, either UN votes or uh, polling data, Roughly 80% of the world does not believe in America's or the Western world's take on the Banderistan war. They don't believe Russia is the aggressor in Ukraine. They believe Russia is fighting a war of existential survival. They don't believe that America is right to supply Ukraine with all these weapons. They don't believe that the Russians are evil monsters. They believe the exact opposite. They're on Russia's side because they see that Russia is standing up for their principles, their ideals, their views of national sovereignty, of independence, of freedom to choose what they want to do with their lives and their countries. 
They don't believe the American narrative. So instead of accepting these things and having a bit of humility and backing off a little bit and saying, you know what, maybe we need to recalibrate our strategy. Maybe we need to change. Maybe we need to adapt and be less belligerent, less, less confrontational with people. Instead of doing the rational thing, the Americans are doubling and tripling and quadrupling down on stupid. This is why you get the current sort of turbo-Americanism, which is driving foreign policy in the United States right now. This is why you get people like Victoria Nuland, Anthony Blinken, Lloyd Austin, God help us, Darth Stupidus as I call him, um, all of these utter clowns who have no qualifications, no understanding of the real economy, of geopolitics, of industrial production, of anything useful in real life. They're, they're all you know, lawyers and political scientists and international relations majors they have, and history majors. They have no concept of anything real. They've never worked pretty much a real job ever in their lives. These are the people running American foreign policy and economic policy straight into the ground. And they're doing it by resorting to the only weapons that elites have in the end. Mass intimidation, fear-mongering, lies, money printing, and threats. That's it. That's all they've got. Now, these are very powerful weapons when you have the teeth and the, and the, the strength to back them up, which the United States did for a very long time. There was a time when if you wanted to play with the big boys, you had to play by American rules. You could only get rich by getting entry into the U.S. financial system. You could only secure your country's sort of um, position by using American military toys. You could only really rely on Saudi energy, which meant you had to pay in American dollars. But that's not the case anymore. The world has changed. The world has moved on from those restrictions and has moved into a different stage where people can choose who they want to do business with, where they want to do business, and how they want to do business. The advent of uh, rapid settlement technology for currencies in different currency pairs, you know, through fintechs, has completely changed the need to use Western payment systems and payment rails. You don't have to use the SWIFT system anymore. You can do business in China or in Russia without having to resort to SWIFT. And if you're one of the various African countries or one of the various countries in Eurasia that wants to develop its own infrastructure, you're no longer stuck with Western companies to provide those backbones. You no longer have to send the data of your citizens out to other people to do that. You can keep it in-house. You can do everything you want in-house with local technologies, with local expertise, guided by foreign hands. Yes, you expose yourself to the Chinese. Okay, that's true. They're not the best business partners, but they're a lot better than the Americans. You will at least be able to do things with people who you know are competitive and cutthroat. Yes, but at least they're not lying to your faces. At least they're not telling you, oh, we'll never ever touch your data. We'll never ever touch your sovereignty. And then, you know, five years down the line, of course, your sovereign, you wake up and your sovereignty is gone. That's the difference. 
And this is the great and terrible tragedy of American policy, of Western policy in general. It didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to be like this if only the West had been sensible enough to restrain itself and understand that there are different ways of looking at the world, that the neoliberal world order is not the only point of view that exists, that there is room for countries who don't agree with the gay agenda, who don't want this LGBT nonsense in their countries. There is room for those countries on this planet. There is no need to reshape the world in one's own image. One can live peaceably with other people as neighbors, as trading partners, without imposing one's own views on them. That's exactly what President Putin said not too long ago. He literally said uh, in his State of the Nation address um, back in February, about a month ago, he said, look, they are basically, in, in, in the West, they, they have this tradition, they have this policy of saying a, a child has parent one and parent two. We don't agree with this. This is madness. As far as we're concerned, it's crazy. Now, if they want to live with that, God bless them. You know, by all means, let them do that. But don't tell us to do it because we don't want it. And I can tell you, again, first-hand knowledge, first-hand experience. I've been there among Russians. They hate that idea. You ask the average Russian, what is marriage? He'll be like, marriage is between one man and one woman. That's it. The, the Russian um, verbs for marriage are actually gender specific. Uh, if a man says he's, he's getting married, he says genis, um, jena being um, the root for woman. Uh, uh, if, a, if a woman is say, says she's getting married, she says zamuj. Muj being the root for man. That gives you some idea of how Russians view marriage. It's one man, one woman. Svadbya, um, that's svadba. Uh, that's that's the the actual noun for marriage. Svadba, but the verbs involved are gender specific, and that's how they like it. They, as far as they're concerned, that is normal and good. A family is one man, one woman and children. It's not this parent one, parent two crap. It's not this, you know, you can be whatever gender you want nonsense. The rest of the world doesn't see things the way the West does. And that's a good thing. Well, I've gone on for uh, about an hour and I do need to get my butt to the gym. Um, do some heavy squats and deadlifts. But I hope this was uh, illuminating and useful. And I hope you have understood from it just how desperate the West position really is and how sad it really is. Because, like I said, none of this had to happen. All of this could have been avoided if only the West had been a little more circumspect, a little more humble, and yet now we're on the edge of a financial and economic catastrophe. Uh, I did get a question from uh, a chap called... Uh, somebody who wrote in. I won't, um, I won't mention his name. But... Um, I will answer it later. Uh, I'll do a domain query later on. I did promise to answer it, so I'll get back to it. But uh, I answered it sort of indirectly. Um, the United States will not back off. It will continue to double down. But anyway, thank you very much for your time and attention. Please remember to like, share, subscribe, and comment. And this has been Didactic Mind, episode 108, Dying of the Light.
and I am Didact signing off.